Thanks, Hayley. Uh, my name's Tim. Uh, if we haven't met, it's great to be with you, uh, and I'll be giving the talk today. There's an outline on the um, newsletter, the handout. Did everybody get a handout? Good, thank you. I just need to change slides. Excuse me. Um, I think it's not a, um, a difficult observation to make that this, in this moment of history, the catch cry almost everywhere is, be yourself. You do you. And intuitively, that's got to be right, doesn't it? Like, who wants to be a fake? Who wants to be inauthentic? Who wants to be pushed into being somebody you're not really by the coercive peer pressure of others around you? The call to be true to yourself is irresistible. But that doesn't finish the question. Which you are you to be true to? Which self? Which Tim? Which you? Because there is the, the me that gave two hours of precious time to sit with a distressed friend and the me that lost my temper with my sibling because they just happened to leave a bit of toothpaste on the sink. There's the me who told my dad that somebody else bashed into the car and I wasn't even there and the me that courageously fessed up that I'm a Christian in a hostile tutorial. There's two different me's often at play. Which one is the real me? You might know that story of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. You heard that story? Seen the movie? Robert Louis Stevenson, very famous story about Dr Jekyll, who's this wonderful, caring people, who's always fixing people up, healing people's injuries, and Mr Hyde, who's a malevolent, violent murderer, causing injuries to people. But we find out that they're actually the same person. They just have two sides to their personality. When you look in the mirror each morning, I hope you do that, that's helpful for the rest of us, what me do you see? What person do you see? Is it, yeah, which sort of person? And which is the real me that you're to be true to? That's the question that Ephesians raises for us. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking to people who are Christians, like many of us are. We've been converted out of a non-Christian life into being followers of Jesus. And he's answering the question, how do we now live? Are we to be true to ourselves? If so, which self? Last week, if you're with us, you will, have, you will know that chapter 4, verse 1, is the pivot of the whole letter, where Paul says, So then, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling, worthy of your walk, to walk worthy of your calling. There's a shift in perspective, shift in tone uh, from uh, telling you things that are true to exhortation, to imperative. So Matt pictured it a bit like this. Chapters 1 to 3 is all indicative. The things that are true, the things that are, that are your calling, what God has done, that lead then to the imperative, how we should live in the light of what God has done for us. And... Uh, um, and the way he says it is, your calling leads to a walk that's worthy. Now, the English translation says, live a life worthy. But literally, he talks about a walk. Because walking is a, it's a really helpful metaphor for thinking about your lifestyle. There are different sorts of walks, aren't there? There's power walking. Get there as quick as possible. There's leisurely stroll. There's companionable walking with a cat, if that is possible. And you probably even recognise your friends by the way they walk. You see them and, oh, yeah, that, that's their walk. 
Well, what is the walk that is suitable for those who know Jesus? Last week, Matt helps us to see that if we're people who have been brought near by the the blood of Jesus, um, sorry, I've skipped a a slide, let's go forward. Um, The bottom one, if we're brought near, reconciled into a new humanity, how do you walk in a manner worthy of that calling? Well, you do what chapter 4 verse 3 says. You make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. One of the other things chapters 1 to 3 tells us is that we're dead and God has made us alive. So it says in chapter 2, you might remember this if you've been with us, we were dead in our sins following the ways of this world, but God made us alive with Christ. Now a question for you to think about, talk with the person next to you is, if that's true of Christians, how should we then live? If we were dead, God made us alive. How would you live? How do you live in a way worthy of that calling? So just talk to the person next to you and see what you can work out, what you come up with, what you can speculate might be how to live. Just give you 30 seconds. Now we could get answers from you, but rather than do that, I'll tell you what the answer is I hope you came to. It's a bit like this. If you've were dead and you've been made alive, then the obvious way to live is to put off that old life, that dead life, and live the new life, be the new self. And that's what our passage today is saying. So verse 17 of chapter 4, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You used to, that was your life, but now don't live that way. Verse 22, with regard to your former way of life, put it off. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted in deceitful desires. Verse 24, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's how to live. So today's passage, in one sense, is very simple and straightforward. Live the new life that God brought you into when he converted you, when he made you alive. Be true to that you, not the old you. Be the new you. Live authentically, consistently, as this new person. And we could finish there, but there's more in the passage. So let's dig into some of the details, because they'll help us see what walking worthily in the nitty-gritty of real life can look like and should look like. So firstly, in verses 17 to 19, he talks about the old self. Let me read some of it. Verse 17. Uh, the futility of thinking darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Do you recognise that life? I suspect many of us do, at least to some extent. He's saying we were ignorant, indulgent, insensitive, ignorant. There's an intellectual element to this. He doesn't mean you couldn't pass your university exams. What he means is you don't know, you didn't know who you really were, where you belong, how to live in this world. I met a guy last week, I called Etienne. We had quite a long conversation and he told me, I can't work out whether everything about our lives is just predetermined by our psychology, our, our anatomy uh, and all the physics and chemistry, or whether we've got free will. 
And I said to him, well, what does it feel like? Do you feel like you make real decisions or do you feel like they're all determined? You're just a puppet. He said, well, it feels like I make real decisions, but maybe that's just predetermined. I thought, yeah, that's a pretty difficult place to get out of, isn't it? How do you work it out? He was ignorant of who he really was. He had a genuine question, but no way to find an answer to that question. And indulgent in greed and sensuality, driven by desires and drives. Just let them rip. Why not? That's the life I'm living. And did you hear about those uni students who just had a night out on the town? They drank a lot too much and woke up the next morning in the beds of strangers uh, wearing very little. Now, you probably didn't hear about it because it's very unremarkable. It's happening all over the place. It just happens. It only sort of becomes remarkable if one of them accuses another of them of uh, some sort of sexual harassment. And insensitive. We have an innate capacity to sympathise with the plight of others. But it's worn thin by the tunnel vision of our own shallow problems and selfishness. And Paul says there's a cause to all this in verse 18. It's because of the hardening of their hearts. There's a hardening of hearts towards God. We want to suppress the truth about God because it's inconvenient. Now that describes me to a T. I can remember in early high school, I I never stopped believing in God. I I was brought up with that belief. I just really, really wanted it not to be true. So I pretended it wasn't true. I created a fantasy world in which God was not real because if God's not real, I can do whatever I want, can't I? I can be whoever I want to be. I can just let it rip because I suppress the truth about God. Now, he paints this old self, this natural self, in fairly dark colours. But my guess is many of us recognise that self. Even if you've been brought up in a Christian family and maybe never had a a time where you rebelled against God, yet you still recognise it, don't you? It's still there. You haven't eradicated it. You, haven't, you, you can't just ignore it and pretend that, that those instincts and those inclinations have somehow uh, been removed from your life altogether. I've been a Christian 50 years, but it's still lurking inside. And Paul says, I insist that you no longer live this way. Put off that old life, take it off, like take off, taking off clothes, and put on this new life. And he describes the new life in verses 20 to 24, at least in broad outline. It's a life that's enlightened and renewed and created. In verse 24, he says, Put on this new self created to be like God in true righteousness, like you'd put on some clothes. He says you've been enlightened by the truth that is in Jesus. Somehow God burst into your life, enabling you to see Everything by the light of Jesus Christ. And that's a totally different life. It renewed the attitude of your mind in verse 23. The way you think, the things that you love, you do it differently now. And this new self, this new person has been created by God in his likeness. No longer hard-hearted and stubborn, but responsive. Now, notice what God didn't do. He didn't stay up in heaven shouting, come on, try harder. You can be a better person if you really try hard to do it. You can be nicer. As if we can somehow improve ourselves. We can pull ourselves up by our shoelaces. It doesn't work. 
Now, God stepped in. You might remember in chapter 2, this new self. In chapter 1, Paul talks about the incomparable power of God that he exerted. He rolled up his sleeves and he, he used all his power to raise Jesus from the dead. And it does take power to do that, doesn't it? I can't do it. You can't do it. It took all of God's power to do it. And he wants us to understand that power of God for us. Well, where is it for us? Well, in chapter 2, we were dead and God made us alive. He took that same power that raised Jesus to raise us to life. Now, if you're not a Christian, can I point out an implication of this? It means you can't simply decide to become a new person and pull it off. Pull it off by the power of your own will and effort. That's like asking a cat to become a fish. It just can't do it. And my guess is you've tried. You've tried to become a better person. And it doesn't work. It didn't work. Can I encourage you to ask God to do it for you and do it in you, to make you alive like he has done with every Christian? And how does God do that? How does God make people alive? Well, back in verse 20, 21, the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. It actually happens by an external means. You heard, you learnt, you were taught the truth that is in Jesus. To put it simply, you heard the gospel that Christ Jesus died for you and rose again. And somehow that news changed you. And he, he assumes you're still being taught the truth about Jesus. You are still learning Christ. And next week we have a chance at Easter to actually delve into those central significant things, the death of Jesus, the resurrection that happened that first Easter. You want your friends to become Christians? Well, bring them to here to learn this Christ because that's what God uses. And in verse 22 he says, As you learned Christ, you were taught to put off the old self and put on the new self. That is, simply hearing that truth and, and understanding it teaches you how to live. You don't need extra information. The way to live, the new way to live, is in, actually embodied in the gospel itself. And so we've been made alive to this new self, and it's the truth in Jesus that shapes this new life. You might ask, how? Well, what did you hear? You heard that Jesus died for you and for your sins. What does that tell you? It tells you that the way you were living, the way I was living, is seriously wrong. That my behaviour, my hard-heartedness towards God, deserves to be condemned and executed. See, before you heard that Jesus died for you, you may have assumed that that way of living was fine. You might think it's just natural, isn't it, to be true to myself as that self-centred, arrogant person. How else could I live? But then you hear, Jesus died because I was living that way, living arrogantly for myself. If that's true, it can't be fine to keep living that way. It's abhorrent and reprehensible and vile to live that way. And therefore, it's pretty clear that having come to know that, that is not the way to live. To be true to that old self is vile and abhorrent. It's just not on. And when you heard that message, this time, 
Sometime, something unexpectedly happened. God made you alive. You went from being unresponsive to responsive, from dead to alive. So it's pretty obvious how to live then, isn't it? You, the, the way to live worthy of the calling you've received is to put off the old self and put on the new self. Now, how many of you have been school students? Quite a few of you. Okay. How many of you are still school students? None of you. You're at university now, aren't you? You're at grown-up place. And when you stopped going to school, you also stopped wearing your school uniform, didn't you? Now, how many of you have worn a school uniform to uni? It's just wrong, isn't it? That's the old life. The old life of restrictions and you've got to wear this. And, but you're in freedom now, aren't you? You started a new life as a uni student. And as a uni student, you don't wear that uniform. You wear a different one, T-shirts and shorts. But it's different to school. What would you say to somebody who turned up at uni wearing their school uniform? I presume you'd say, did you not think about what you were going to wear today? Go on, go home, take it off, put on some university clothes. Now, it's a sort of facile illustration, but you get the point, don't you? We've started a new life. To live the old life now is just inappropriate. It's the wrong way to do it. And so Paul goes on to give us some details of this new self, this new way of life. Beginning in verse 25, it actually goes all the way through into chapter 6. We're looking at some of it today. After Easter and after the break, we'll look at the rest of it. And if you like details, then you'll love these couple of paragraphs we're looking at because they give you some detail of the old way versus the new way. What's it actually like? What is this new walk? And he does it in three different areas, our speech, our emotional actions, and our possessions and work. Let's talk about speech first. It says in verse 25, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Our old self didn't want the truth. We suppressed it. We couldn't handle the truth. We preferred darkness and living a lie. But the gospel is truth and reality breaking into our lives. The truth that's in Jesus, about me, about God, about the world, about my evil, about everything. And so the new life involves living in truth, especially speaking the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. Apparently one of the places most Australians lie most on is in resumes. The new life means being honest and truthful in our resumes. The research also says that the people we lie to most are the people we're closest to. 86% of parents are lied to regularly by their children. 69% of spouses are lied to by their spouse. It's sort of shocking figures, aren't they? We lie, and we lie to those that are closest to us, that mean the most to us. But the new life is speaking the truth. Or verse 29, he comes back to speech again. He talks about don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. He talks about speech that is rotten, like, you know, rotten fruit. And and if you put a rotten um, apple into a bowl of apples, it starts to spread and makes everything rotten. And our speech is often like that. 
We've had that smell of rotting fruit as we cut down others with sarcasm and innuendo, belittling them because we want to boast about ourselves. Now, our mouths are full of words, and he wants us to fill our words, our mouths, with words that build up instead of tear down, shaped by the other person's needs, not my insecurities. If you were with us last week, it sort of echoes what he said back in chapter 4. As the, the new body of Christ, we're to build each other up. That's our privilege and our joy and our duty. And how do we do that? Primarily by speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth about Jesus. Bringing the light of Jesus into every area of each other's lives by speaking the truth. Because we're members of one body, forged together by Jesus. If I use my words to deceive and attack each other. What am I doing? It's sort of like I poke my tongue out, sharpen it so it's really sharp, and then I start cutting up my arms. I'm attacking my own body. Paul says that's not the new life. The new life is recognising we're members of each other. And so using speech that is true and builds up. Then he turns to emotional actions. It's a funny sort of phrase, but I think it captures what Paul is thinking about. Because our emotions trigger actions, don't they? We feel something, so we do something. And so in verse 26, he talks about one emotion, anger. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now, there is an anger that isn't sin, the sort of anger that God has against the evil of the world that that damages and destroys people. But our anger is almost always tainted by our wounded pride and slighted reputation. And Paul says, don't sin in your anger and be careful about it. Don't sit in your anger. Don't let it stew, plotting what you're going to do about it. Do something quickly to resolve it. Before the sun goes down, go and be reconciled. Deal with your anger. Or verse 31 Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Again, there's, there's emotions here and there's an escalation in emotion. There's bitterness, which is anger harboured. And then that erupts into an, a, a lashing out in rage and brawling, shouting abuse at others. Paul says, cut it off at its root. Get rid of all of it from the beginning to the end. Now, just a sidebar on our emotions like anger. After Freud, Western society has come to believe a myth. The myth is that if you have an emotion, if you feel something, then it's psychologically damaging if you don't express that emotion. So if, if I'm angry, what have I got to do? I've got to somehow vent my anger, otherwise it'll do damage internally to me. If I'm lusting, I've got to express that. I've got to do something with my emotions. But that's not true, and Paul certainly wouldn't agree with that way of thinking and behaving. What is true is that it's dangerous to not acknowledge emotions, to pretend I'm not angry. Yeah, that is dangerous. And that bitterness often comes from that sort of suppression of the reality. Now, if you feel something, feel it. But as you feel it, Decide what you will do with it. Be angry, but don't sin. That's Paul's instruction. Yes, there's nothing wrong sometimes with being angry, and sometimes you can't stop yourself from feeling angry. 
But when you're feeling angry and you know it and you feel it, you can decide, will I live the old life or the new life? And the new life, he goes on to say a bit more about in verse 32. Instead of that anger and rage and brawling and malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The opposite of anger is compassion, forgiving. Because that's what you learned in Christ, didn't you? He was compassionate towards you, towards us. His forgiveness Blossomed, it lavished on us. We've experienced his costly forgiveness. And so a walk worthy of that calling is to, to forgive and live at peace with each other. Thirdly, he talks about possessions and work. Verse 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, uh, doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Are you a thief? Sorry to be so confronting. My assumption is you are. But at some stage, you've downloaded software that wasn't yours. You've sniped a bit of Wi-Fi that didn't belong to you. You've shoplifted. One in five Australians shoplifts from the supermarket. Yeah, it's sort of stunning, isn't it? One in five Australians uh, does that. I don't know how often, but that's what, the, 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 that's what Google says. I presume it's right. Now, the law says stop stealing. And Paul says, stop stealing, because that's the old life. But he doesn't stop there. The gospel of Jesus goes further. He says, you know those hands that used to reach out and grab and take? Do something useful with those hands. Create, build something that's good. That's good for you, good for others. And go so far as to now have enough to have in your hand to offer to others. The very hands that grabbed now become the hands that give. That's to live a life worthy of the calling. A God who's been so generous to you. A Jesus whose own hands were stretched out in crucifixion to give us life. There's the new life created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And as you think about it, there's a genuine beauty to that, isn't there? Speech that is truthful and edifying. Emotions that are held in in check when they're going to uh, damage and hurt people, but instead full of compassion and forgiveness. And productive work so that you share with others rather than rip them off. But it's not merely external morality that Paul's concerned about. We don't live in a merely material world. And so he keeps bringing in the spiritual dimension to these things. Verse 27 Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. To dwell in my anger, to let that bitterness grow in me, is to give the devil an opportunity to tear me apart and fracture the community God created. We were enslaved to the devil, doing his bidding, but God raised us. He stripped the devil of uh, of his power. We've been liberated from his claws. And so he says, don't jump back into his clutches. Or verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If we offend and distress the Holy Spirit by unholy behaviour, we're going against everything that God has done in us and for us. He's given us the Spirit that seals us. It's God's mark of ownership. We belong to him. How can you then grieve the Spirit behaving as if you belong to the devil? 
So he gives us these details and they're helpful. There's many more to come in the next few chapters. But the central idea is this idea of putting off and putting on. It's an idea of clothes. Um, now, when you put on clothes in the morning, in one sense you can think, oh, it's just superficial, they're just clothes. But actually, the clothes you choose to put on when you get up in the morning do somehow signal who you really are, don't they? Now, you get up in the morning and you just put your old school uniform on and come to uni, it signals something's wrong with you, doesn't it? You've put the wrong clothes on. Because we express some sense of self by our clothes. And so Paul picks up that metaphor, that picture, and he says, what clothes are you going to wear? Which is really a way of saying, which life will you live? Which is the real you? For Christians, the difficulty for us is there's two competing persons, two competing identities. We're pulled in different directions. There's the old self, which often still feels so natural, so comfortable, so easy. It's like putting on a a pair of well-worn-in boots. They just fit and feel good because we've practised that much more and it's our default. And because of that, it's so easy to just assume the old self is the real me. The the new self often feels a bit forced, a bit faked. I've got to work to be it. It is not natural. And so I can think that that's not the real me. But God is clear and our experience is clear. The new self is the real you if you are a Christian. God has made you alive. You are a new person. God's power by his spirit enables you to be different. I think what often happens is we just revert by default to the old self. We, we start ignoring that truth and we just live in self-indulgence. And so Paul insists, no longer live that way. Just take off that, that clothing and put on the new self. What might that look like? Well, each day you get up in the morning, don't you, and you decide what clothes to wear. I hope you do. I'm glad none of you came. Without making any decisions about what clothes, that would be slightly awkward. And Paul is asking us to do the same thing. In the same way that you think about putting your clothes on in the morning, and you choose your clothes, choose which person you will be today. The old self or the new self? There's a real decision to make. Because it's no longer appropriate to live the old self, is it? He's urging us, encouraging us to put on the new self, to close ourselves, to decide to be that person. But it's not just a sort of once-a-day decision. It's a moment-by-moment decision as well. Deciding what we're going to say when we're down in the ref, just sitting around the table with some friends, when we're in a lecture and the person next to you says hi. In our family situation, sharing the house with parents and and siblings. We've got to decide which person will be in each situation. What words will come out of my mouth? Because our mouths are like fire hoses, aren't they? Words just pour out. But which words, which person will they show is the real you? When you decide whether you'll pill for some Wi-Fi, as you react to that annoying driver who's just cutting in in front of you, what does Paul say? Well, he doesn't say, let's see what the law says. Let's go back. Is there a threat to the law? If I do this, is everything going to go bad? No, his encouragement is to ask the question, 
Which is the real me? The one who loses his temper or the one who's compassionate and forgiving? Which person will I be in the moment as I respond to what's going on? Now, do you find that you're living in tension? That, some, that, that you're getting pulled in both ways. I, I do want to be this, but I want to be this as well. Is, is that what you find? If so, can I say, great. I'm really glad that that's true. Because that means there is a new self. God has created in you a new person. So if you're dead, you can swim with the current, can't you? In fact, you just float and the current takes you. You've got to be alive to swim against the current. If you want to swim against the current, if you want to do different to the old self, if you want to live in a new way, the new self, then God has made you new. And that's a wonderful thing. That's the only thing that can give you hope. But it means every day has a a certain discomfort to it. Your calling and my calling is to live the new self, to swim against the current and be the person God has recreated me to be. Will you choose to be that today, tomorrow, until the Lord returns?